According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Numbers 25. We're going to cover Numbers 25 and 26 this hour. This is day 68 in the Through the Bible reading schedule. Day 68, this is the March 9th reading. Moab seduces Israel, this and the second census. So we got two chapters to cover. I kind of teased it last hour that we have uh, all the sex stuff is coming up. The and 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 you all stuck around. So we, I don't know what that says. No, it says your positive Bible doctrine is what that says. All right. It is a fun chapter, actually. I like. Phineas is my hero, and when Phineas takes action and does what needs to be done, it's one of the greatest uh, things I've, I've read anywhere in the Bible. So I just, I like it. So let's open with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, again, this is our privilege and blessing to assemble today. I thank you for the uh, the messages you've already supplied to this morning and now to this afternoon. And Father, just continuing on through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you are so amazing with each thing that you open our eyes to see. So thank you for this uh, this format. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that are uh, diligent to present themselves approved before you, rightly dividing the word of truth. Bless our time this hour. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we just finished the Balaam chapters in 22, 23, 24. Uh, Balaam is not mentioned in 25, but he is the instigator for 25. We learn that elsewhere. We learn that in the New Testament. We learn that uh, when we get to 31 and we actually see the, the war in Midian where, where Balaam loses his life. So stay tuned for that. Even as the Lord was protecting Israel from Balaam's curses, Israel was beginning to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And this is the backup plan. This is the direct curse doesn't work. The, uh, the harlotry will work. That if you get Israel in, into systems of idolatry and harlotry, then God himself is going to judge his own people. You don't have to curse them. God himself is going to judge his own people. So effectively, as far as the Gentiles are concerned, it's six of one, half dozen the other. It's, it makes no difference. As, as long as he, they can bring about a negative result for the Jewish people, that's what they're trying to do. So as we look at verses 1 through 3, when, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. What does that mean, playing the harlot? Because okay, it's, 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 a, it's a PG way of saying they began fornicating with the daughters of, Mor- of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifices to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to... Again, that's a PG expression. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, you know, the Sunday morning way of saying they fornicated. The Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against Israel. And so this is the intersection of, of, uh, uh, idolatry with adultery. This is the intersection of, of uh, worshiping the other gods that God said thou shalt not worship. That uh, commandment number one and two was against idolatry and against, you know, worshiping any other God but God and the issues there. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against Israel. And we have this idiom about playing the harlot all throughout Scripture. 
It involves idolatry and worship of false gods. That's in the religious sphere. That's in the faith sphere because Yahweh is their God. If they worship Baal or they worship uh, Zeus or they worship uh, Moloch or whatever they do, all these other false gods of the nations around them, every time they worship a false god, God considers that to be fornication. He considers that to be unfaithfulness. Israel is his nation. And if they're going to play the harlot with these other gods, it's like a wife that decides that she's going to play with some other husband, some other man that's not her husband, as it were. And so idolatry and worship of false gods. Secondly, playing the harlot involves sinful sexual activity. The blunt expression is fornication. And if it seems odd to you to have religious unfaithfulness kind of intersecting with uh, you know, physical sexual uh, violations, get over it. It's not strange, it's normal, it's biblical. It's, it's how the Old Testament presents it repeatedly, again and again and again and again. That as a metaphor, you're violating your, your covenant vows to the Lord God in your spiritual adultery with this uh, idolatry activity. And then in most cases in the ancient world, you were also physically involved in the fornicating of those religious systems. Does that seem odd to you? Okay. I can recommend some history books, <laughs> right? And and it, it is it's this it's this because most of the the uh, the cultures were agricultural. Many of the the gods were centered on the agricultural cycles and the fertility rites. So you want to have fertile crops, you want to have fertile animals, you want to have fertility in, in in general for your people group. And so the goddesses of fertility are all about the fertilizing, right? They're all about the inseminating activities. And so they would reenact these activities. And as such, when you're participating with the, with the they call so-called sacred priestesses, okay, it's just ritual prostitution is what it comes down to. You're paying your fees, you're giving your money to the gods, and the priestess will walk you through the, through the ritual, okay? And, uh, and all of that. Okay, and we learn. Uh, we we studied this, um, you know, most recently. I don't know if most recently, but we studied this. Perhaps the most comprehensive was in Corinth in the introduction to First Corinthians, because Corinth was the capital of all things. Uh, you know, the the temple of Aphrodite was there, and a thousand priestesses in the one establishment of that one temple. Okay, so you talk about taking this on an industrial scale off the charts. That's what Corinth was known for. And, uh, and the issues there. So we have um, idolatry and fornication simultaneously in this episode. They invited the people to sacrifice of their gods. And I expect today we could probably do something similar if we opened up a, a, a religion of this nature and invited people to come. And if every religious service, you know, was a guaranteed sexual encounter, you might... Uh, you might have a, a large crowd for something like that. All right. So the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. <laughs> okay. Well, that'll, that'll take care of it. Um, all the leaders of the people. And remember, this is now the, the wilderness generation. This is the children of the Exodus generation. And, and those guys are already dead. We're already past that. We've already gone now. Aaron's dead. Miriam's dead. Basically, it's Moses and, and, and he's about to die. It's Moses and Caleb and, jo- and Joshua are the only ones remaining that were over 20 when they walked through the, the Red Sea on dry ground. 
So these are now the new leaders, the new tribal leaders. So that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel. Now there's an interesting title. This again gives us a little clue that some time has gone by in the meantime. Back in the day he had appointed 70 elders to assist him in judging Israel. Is this the same? It can't be the same literal men. They're all dead. But the the school that was started or the college that was started or the judicial court system that was started at that time now is continuing evidently as an office within the nation of Israel. And they're referred to as the judges of Israel. Each of you is to slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And so we, we, uh, each tribe would know who the, who the guilty parties are within their tribe. And it's, the judgment is going to be handled locally. So much of what God, do, God does is on a local basis. The people that are in the closest proximity to the situation have the best awareness of what's going on in their tribe, in their clan, in their household, in their, uh, in their family, in their head of household. All right, getting ahead of myself here in these notes. Playing the harlot involves idolatry and worship of false gods. Playing the harlot involves sinful sexual activity. Both elements were mentioned in the Lord's address to Pergamum. This comes up again, and uh, we we saw this a couple times last hour with Balaam uh, and the reference there because he was teaching, uh, counseling for the uh, the sexual idol the sexual idolatry of this event. The daughters of Moab were the were another mercenary force that Balak brought in to use against Israel. So he's combining both the Midianite women and the Moabite women on this. The daughters of Moab were another mercenary force. I put that in quotes. You know, like you would bring in an armor division, you would bring in a, an infantry division, you'd bring in an artillery division. Um, in this case, you bring in the harlots. You're bringing in the women. Moabite women and Midianite women. The primary seductresses were Midianite women. And they're the ones that kind of take center stage here. Even though Moabite women were mentioned in verse 1, playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab, but then in verse 6 and in verse 15, Cosby there is the Midianite woman. And then in verse 15, the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. We'll, We'll see her here in a moment. And then uh, in chapter 31, verses 15 and 16, in a, in a reminiscence mode here, Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. This is as they defeated Midian in battle. They defeated Midian in battle, and Moses was like, Why did you spare the women? These were the, these were the, the uh, perpetrators of this terrible failure back in chapter 25. So we'll get to that when we get to chapter 31. Moses orders the execution of every male among the little ones and uh, every woman who has known a man intimately. But the girls who have not known a man, int- in other words, the younger, the virgins, you can keep the, the virgins as your, male, as your female slaves. We'll get to that when we get to Numbers 31. So the primary seductresses were Moab, uh, were the Midianite women, but also the Moabs. Remember, there was a there was a dynamic at work there when Balak, the king of Moab, went and he hired the elders of the Midianite people. So they're working together. They're in cahoots, we might say, if we used words like cahoots. 
All right. So Moses and the leaders, the judges of Israel, are going to are charged by the Lord with executing the Baal worshippers. Um, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight. Do it now. They're not going to, you know, take months to try them and then years to execute them while they have all these appeals and all these uh, ACLU judges keep saying why they're misunderstood and, and should be spared and whatever. Uh, they're going to be tried. They're going to be convicted. They're going to be executed today before the sun goes down in broad daylight before the Lord. So the fierce anchor. So Moses said to the judges, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. It's that simple. Did they do it? Guilty. Put them to death. Kind of neat if we could have justice like that today, don't you think? Now admittedly, that requires omniscience on the part of God to know who did it, when, and then put them to death on the spot. Even with the execution of so many Baal worshippers, plague was sweeping through the camp, and Israel was weeping. The plague continued as Zimri the Simeonite had the audacity to flaunt his defiance to the Lord. All right, so this gets us now in verses 6 through 15. So while all this is going on, you think, well, that's going to stop the plague. It's actually not stopping the plague. They're ordered to do it, but notice what happens next. Verse 6. Behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So notice it's a public venue. Notice that there's public weeping that's going on. And notice that it is flaunting right in the face of Moses and all the spiritual leadership. This is, uh, you know, it's like what happens to a nation when what should be shameful is then flaunted and paraded and glorified as if, uh, you know, you're wrong to think that we're wrong in what we're doing. Trying to turn it upside down and say, you're the one who's got the problem because you won't approve of my fornication. Would such a thing happen today? Of course. (laughs) It's been happening for a long, long time, which is why we get labeled the haters. So, Again, in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So what should be a lamentation event is now becoming this harlotry episode. Right there in full public view, in front of God and everybody. We'll learn his name down in verse 14. Zimri will learn her name, Cosby, in verse 15. And then we'll see the heroic actions of Phineas. Let's read through that now. So Phineas, the son of Eleazar, that makes him a grandson of Aaron, right? That makes him a great-great-grandson of, of Levi. Right? We've got the whole family tree there. Or we can do the clans of Levi and then the, the, uh, the Kohath and then Amram and then Aaron and then Eleazar and then Phineas. Okay, evidently the firstborn son of Eleazar, evidently the one that's in line to become high priest someday. But he was a young man and he was under 20 at the point of the, of the exodus, if he was even born yet. Anyway, now he takes action. The son of Aaron the priest saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. So this is like the, the, the trial and, the, and the, uh, the, the sentence and the execution in one fell swoop. And he takes the spear in his hand 
And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. So this plague is sweeping through the land and here's this full public display. And uh, Phineas puts an end to it. Just one spear through the man and the woman together in the act and uh, one stroke ended it both. Okay? So, so I guess it takes two to tango, but it only takes one spear to, <laughs> to get them both right there in the act. I think we should just pause and reflect for the moment on the... No, we shouldn't. But it is... It's, it's, it's graphic. I mean, this is what he's doing. He just storms on in there, plunges the spear down, and saves the nation with this one stroke. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. You know, and really it was the audacity of Phinehas. It was that bold reflection of God's anger and God's jealousy that that the Lord himself responded to. He saw his own jealousy reflected in, in Phinehas. And, uh, and Phineas's decisive action moved God's hand to end the, uh, the plague with that very, uh, that very moment, that very thrust of the spear. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. Does that sound peaceful? <laughs> Thrusting the spear through and ending the fornication. I mean, God uses the language of peace for this. Okay, And I think sometimes... You have to do what you have to do, and it's not pleasant, but somebody's got to do it. And, uh, and in terms of what people have in mind related to war and peace, and of course now we've got this thing in the news going on, but the idea of peace at any cost of just, let's just stop fighting, let's not fight, let's not fight. Maybe peace comes when you win the fight. Maybe peace comes when you end it with, uh, with the force that's necessary to be done, and, uh, and then the peace is the consequence, Okay. I think Colonel Theme wrote that as the freedom through military victory. And that's uh, it's a great title because it's true. So uh, I give my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him. So there's a segment now of Eliezer's line that's the Phineas line that's blessed related to this title. A perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So Phineas stands in this. And then later, I mentioned earlier uh, that uh, Zadok, during the time of, of uh, David, Zadok is another uh, Eli- Eliezer branch uh, high priest uh, that has a tremendous reward from the Lord. The line of Zadok gets blessed through the, uh, the millennial kingdom. All right, so the name of the slain man was uh, Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. So we know his tribe, we know his father's clan, we know the issue there. The name of the Midianite woman was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. And who was Zur, do you ask? He was the head of the people of a father's household in Midian. So again, this is where these leading clans have so much sway over their tribes or over their nations. This is what's, uh, you know... We, we've lost this today. America is not a tribal people. We're not a tribal, I mean, we're kind of creating tribes with our politics, but we're not a tribal 
on a family basis with clans and tribes and people and people groups and so forth. And when it, you know, we talk about political families, the Kennedys or the Clintons or the whatever, we talk about the Bushes, we can talk about these political clans, these political families uh, for what they are, but, but that's only a metaphor, you know, related to a culture that truly is tribal based on clans and family relationships. We don't have that in our, in our nation. But most of the ancient world did, and uh, the Midianites were no different. And Zur had so much sway, not only did he have, you know, put his own daughters to work in this uh, endeavor, but he uh, had the influence over all of the Midianites to send their daughters into, into battle or into bedroom or into whatever, dispatching his own girls to go and engage in this activity so as to lead Israel into um, the divine discipline that this activity produces. Okay? That makes sense? All right. <laughs> I don't know, it's easier with armor divisions and infantry divisions and artillery and all the traditional uh, combat arms that you would have with cavalry and, and, uh, and everything else. All right. So be hostile. The, the closing message here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. Now there were there was some grace that was directed towards the Edomites because they're the twin brother of Israel. Uh, some grace directed towards the Ammonites and the Moabites. We'll see that in the early chapters of Deuteronomy because they are the heritage of Lot. And that's going to become an important concept when we get into those early chapters of Deuteronomy. That got spelled out explicitly in the scriptures. So Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites... Of all of the ites that Israel considered as enemies, these were ites that were considered as should be friendly neighbors based upon the historical connections between them. Now the Midianites, you would think, would be potential to be a friendly nation, to be, because Moses' grandfather-in-law uh, was Jethro, the high priest of the Midianites. We also had the recognition who the Midianites were in the first place as an Abrahamic people group, descended from Abraham and his, and his concubine Keturah. Uh, we might think that the Midianites could have the potential of being a friendly nation, but after an episode like this, it's obvious. They are sold out to the uh, to the uh, satanic program, and, and Jethro's not alive anymore, and, and nobody that was a, you know, a positive believer back in that day has any influence. It seems like Zur and his clan are calling the shots here among the, uh, the Midianites. So, God tells Moses then, uh, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks. A nation group has to know who their friends are and who their enemies are. And you can't lie to yourself about somebody that's hostile to you. And if they intend you harm, then you have a duty as a nation to either harm them first or uh, be strong enough to keep them from harming you. They have been hostile to you with their tricks. See, understand, these are nations dealing with nations. Please don't confuse the laws of divine establishment for uh, volition, for marriage, for family, for nationalism. Do not confuse those abiding principles. They still hold sway today. And if you think, oh, well, yeah, yeah, but we're in the New Testament now, just stop that. And, and I've had people say, oh, come on, Jesus said turn the other cheek. And I'm like, ah, hermeneutics, people, okay? 
We're talking about nations and the laws of the divine establishment. That The turn the other cheek message was not about that. That's about personal interactions and your own personal uh, grievances and being insulted and the mistreatment on an individual basis. That's an entirely different realm. Anyway, they have been hostile to you with their tricks. You be hostile to them. That's an order. You don't have to be friends with every nation on the face of the earth. You can be friends with the ones that are your friends and you can be enemies with the ones that are enemies and you better know the difference with which they've deceived you in the affair of Peor and the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leaders of Midian. And so we kind of have a distinction there. It seems like maybe Peor was more with the Moab side and then the secondary event was more with the Midian side. We can break it down in different ways. But the affair of Peor and the affair of Cosby, I hate the word affair. You know, I mean, to me, affair seems like it's just a, it's a euphemism. It's a way to give a friendlier term to something that's just ugly and horrendous. How about fornication? How about harlotry? How about um, something as ugly as the deed itself? So, they have deceived you in the fornication of Peor and in the fornication of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. All right, so the result of the pure incident is a hostility against Midian. And we see this not only here, but the full-scale war breaks out in chapter 31. There's also a time of affliction in the realm of the judges. This is the, um, in Judges 6 through 8, this is the adversary that is raised up against Israel during the reign, or during the, the judging of Gideon. Okay? Does it help that Gideon rhymes with Midian? It helps me. <laughs> So Israel is oppressed by Midian for seven years, and then we have um, chapter 6 through 8 here with the deliverance that comes, and lo and behold, it's Gideon. Midian was also an uh, object lesson for all future generations. Deuteronomy 4.3. See, I'm not the only fanboy. I'm not the only Bible reader that ever thought Phineas was extra cool. Okay? Moses writes about this in Deuteronomy 4. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who follow Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. That's in, that's in writing. That's a warning. Don't follow that example. Joshua 22.17 Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day although a plague came upon the congregation of the Lord? So in a lot of ways, some of those attitudes lingered even to the end of, Josh, of Joshua's life in Joshua 22. Some of those mindsets are still there. You know, and so you start to think, how, how dark is this darkened mind that's fantasizing or daydreaming or wondering, right? Because the ones who were guilty of the sin were put to death. But the ones who weren't guilty of the sin, I think a lot of them wanted to and end up thinking, well, what would that have been like? Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day? There are ongoing, there's ongoing, there's a legacy of damage that gets done through this, uh, this behavior. Psalm 106. You have a uh, walk through the Bible that's coming here in Psalm 106. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor. I mean, you can read the whole chapter if you want. You've got a history of Israel and the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. 
But they joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed so that a plague was stayed. Do we have any Phineases today, men that will take a stand and say that uh, you know the, the word of the Lord has to be done? It was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. We have the experiential right, justification of this event to, uh, to Phineas's credit. Described in that way. Hosea 9 and verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. What's Hosea, by the way? Hosea is the prophet to the northern kingdom. Their king, their last king of the northern kingdom was also named Hosea. So God gave him a name of, of Hosea, gave a prophet named Hosea. Hosea is the, it's like Jehoshua or Joshua. It's, it's a form of Jesus when you put it into the Greek. In this message... I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit and the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. They became as detestable as that which they loved. So you talk about an object lesson that continued for centuries to be spoken of, to be looked back to. All right. Which takes us now to Numbers chapter 26. Nearly 40 years have passed since Kadesh and a new military muster is required for those who will go forth to war. The muster they took before, those guys are all dead. Caleb and Joshua are the last living soldiers of that first muster. So it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, take a census, that is, take a psalm, that is, muster a military record of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Not the non-combatants, not the women, not the children, not the elderly. Who's the oldest man in Israel right now? Okay, Except for Moses, except for Caleb and Joshua. Take those three away. Who's the oldest man in Israel right now? Could be pushing 60 if he was 19 when he walked through the wilderness. right? And now 40 years have gone by. All right. From 20 years old and upper, I mean, virtually the entire adult male population is, is eligible to go to war. That's what I'm saying, because they were so young, and now they're, uh, they're taking part in the second military muster. From 20 years old and upward, by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. Like we saw in chapter 1, it is not a civilian census. It is a military muster. And the, the forces are being organized into their companies, into their battalions, like we saw in the, uh, the study in chapter 1. So Moses and Eliezer the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, and, and they are so close to crossing the Jordan River at this point, they are opposite Jericho, they are ready for the invasion. Does that seem too early? Does it seem too soon? You're like, wait a minute, this is Numbers chapter 26. We still have all of Deuteronomy to go before we get to Joshua, that's right. But it gives you an idea how compressed Deuteronomy is. How, uh, because we're right now on the, on, the, on the threshold of crossing the Jordan and, and conquering Jericho. That's how close they are. So Deuteronomy is very compressed in time. It's Moses' five farewell messages and then his death and on they go. So Moses and Eliezer the priest spoke with him in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, or across from Jericho, saying, 
from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord has commanded Moses. So the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were. And now there are some slight differences, besides the numbers are all different, but beyond the numbers being different, there is actually additional detail provided in this muster that weren't given in in the first muster. Specifically the names of these families and their, um, their clan divisions. So... Forty years have passed since Kadesh, a new military muster is required. Once again, 20 years of age and up, fit for military service. Once again, Levi is not numbered with the other tribes. He'll be numbered separately. This muster includes clan breakdowns for each tribe. That was not given in chapter 1. The clan breakdowns, we'll give those to you. When we work our way through verse 5 through verse 51, I, I did put some of the numbers in red so that you can in, just offhand you can see that it's an increase or a decrease. I also put some uh, some notes in here that when you hover the mouse over you can see to compare the first muster with the second muster. And that's that's a handy feature as well. Alright, then of course the unrevised traditional numbers. Um, when you're just looking at those, when you're scanning down the page and you're seeing numbers like 43,730, when you're seeing numbers like uh, 22,200 or 40,500, all of those numbers in the Masoretic Hebrew text are a mess. In the manuscripts are filled with copy errors, filled with problems, filled with corrections, filled with, filled with scribal emendations where they're trying to fix problematic numbers. And those, num- those problems carry across into the Septuagint, they carry across into um, Samaritan Pentateuch, they, they carry across into other languages. This chapter is a mess. And as beautiful and pristine and clean as chapter 1 was, Chapter 26 is the opposite. <laughs> so it becomes a, a, a text criticism endeavor to work your way through. But I think we've got a good job with it here. I think the, the scholars that I've relied upon have really pinpointed some of the issues. We found where the biggest error is and where some of the other corrections were attempted to be made in, uh, in different ways. So we can see it there. All right, so we have Reuben. In verses 5 through 11... We have a pretty lengthy section on Reuben here, and the reason why is because of the, the rebellion of Korah that took place. There's a, there's a note that's made with respect to that in the process of this muster. So most of the other tribes won't be nearly as verbose uh, as, uh, as Reuben is here. Reuben, Israel's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, of Hanok, the family of the Hanakites, of Palu, the family of the Palutites, the Paluites, of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the family of the Carmites, these are the families of the Reubenites. So essentially there are four clan divisions within the, or four clan, I don't want to call them divisions, that's a military term, four clan uh, elements within the tribe of, of uh, Reuben. These are the families of the Reubenites, and those who were numbered of them were, and then we have the number here, effectively 42 Elufim chiefs, 17.3 Maoth battle units. Remember, the word for thousands can refer to chiefs. The word for hundreds can refer to battle units or companies. So we have 42 chiefs, 17.3 battle units. I.e., you can break them down into two battalions with 9 and 8.3 companies. That's lower than they had before. In the first muster, they had 45 chiefs. Okay, they had 45 chiefs, now they're down to 42 chiefs. 
In the first muster, they had 15 ma'oth, two companies, or two battalions. So 15 ma'oth. Here they actually have more ma'oth, but fewer chiefs. The sons of Palu include Eliab. Uh-oh, that could be a problem. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. These are the same, Dathan and Abiram, who were called by the congregation, who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah. And uh, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, so that they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. Remember, they had separated themselves, and we talked about the legacy that they would have with the hymn writing later in Israel's history. So that's why the, the, the census here on, on Reuben is longer than any other. I think it impacts our understanding of how their armies were organized and the rebels that, uh, that were purged. All right, we move on from them to the Simeonites, verses 12 through 14. Again, we have clan divisions. The families of the Simeonites, verse 12 through 14. The sons of Simeon, according to their families, of Nemuel, of the family of the Nemuelites, of Jamin, the family of the Jaminites, of Jakin, the family of the Jakinites, of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites, of Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. So you get your five clans there. These are the families of the Simeonites, again, either the number 22,200 or the better understanding. Now this is where, oh, they got short 30,000. Essentially it should be 52,200. And that's part of the, the manuscript puzzles that we, that we sort out. Simeon should be 52,000, not 22,000. Anyway, 50 Elohim chiefs and 22 Maoth battle units. Three battalions with eight, seven, and seven companies compared to the first muster where they had 57 Elohim and 23 Maoth. So once you fix that, once you realize, you know what, they got, they got ripped off by 30,000. And some of the scribes back in the day, they knew that. They knew that was a problem. And so they tried to, to, to pad some of the other numbers to adjust so that their grand total at the bottom of the, of the paragraph worked itself out. So they end up borrowing from some of these other tribes as well. I mark them with asterisks when we come to them so they'll remind me that it's an amended number. So 22,200 should actually read 52,200. All right, then the sons of Gad. 39 Elohim and 15 Maoth. The sons of Gad, according to their families, of Zephon, the family of Zephonites, of Hagi, the family of the Haggites, of Shuni, the family of the Shunites, of Ozni, the family of Oznites, Eri, the family of the Urites, and Erod, the family of the Erodites, and Ariel, I'm sorry, Areli, not the little mermaid, Areli, the family of the Aralites. And so these are the families of the sons of Gad according to those who number them. And again, that's the Masoretic number. And when you break it down into Elohim and Maoth, you get 39 Elufim, 15 Maoth. That's a little bit down from the first census when they had 44 Elufim and 16 and a half Maoth. Remember Gad the first time around was the one that had the odd 50. They're the ones that had the half company in their, in their muster. On to Judah. Verses 19 through 22. 
sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Judah, according to their families, were Shalah, the family of the Shalonites, of Perez, the family of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites. The sons of Perez were of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the family of the Hamulites. These are the families of Judah, according to those who numbered them. And so these are useful. These, these family and clan divisions are useful, and we can compare them to what we've already studied in Genesis. We can study how they are broken down in the, in the uh, First Chronicles record when we have First and Second Chronicles, these family records that are indicated. And of course for Judah, it's the one that we know the best because this is the one where the line of Christ descends, and many of these names we see in, in those family lines as well. Anyway, 76,500 or better that we understand. 74 Elohim, 25 Maoth. 74 Elohim and 25 Maoth. So that's actually one extra or two extra chiefs than what they had a generation ago. They only had 72 chiefs in the numbers one muster. Uh, It's one Maoth off. They have one fewer company, 25 rather than 26. So still with three battalions, but the battalions are 9, 8, and 8 instead of 9, 9, and 8 that we had before. By the way, if this is all new to you and you did not take part in the Numbers chapter 1 description, I give a lot more information there as to what the breakdowns are. So I would encourage you to back up and and review that if, if you have any questions on that. All right, then Issachar. 52 Elohim chiefs, 23 Maoth. We have his sons and his clans that are listed here. The families of Tola, Tolaites, Puva, Punites, uh, Jashub, the Jashubites, Shimron, the Shimronites. And all of those Shimronites, remember all of these ites, they're just clans of the tribes. They're all Jews, but they're, they're broken down by the tribe and by their clan. So the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered of them, uh, this is their 52 Elohim and 23 Maoth. Same number as they had in the first census of their chiefs, and uh, one fewer Maoth, one fewer company of infantry. Sons of Zebulun, here's their families. Sered, Elon, Jalil, and those uh, descendants. These are the families of Zebulonites according to those who numbered them, 60,500 or 58 Elohim chiefs, 25 Maoth, and uh, the comparison there with the first census as it's listed there. Manasseh and Ephraim, here's more problems with the manuscripts. I highlighted this in uh, chapter 1. The sons of Joseph, according to their families, Manasseh and Ephraim, of the sons of Manasseh, and actually these are given in a backwards order, Manasseh first instead of Ephraim. Whereas in chapter 1 it was the other way around. And the numbers are transposed. So the sons of Joseph, according to their families, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Manasseh, of Machir, the family of the Machirites. Machir became the father of Gilead, of Gilead, the family of the Gileadites, that eastern region where they settled, the land of Gilead. Okay, The half-tribe of Manasseh settled out there. These are the sons of Gilead, of Yezer, the family of the Yezerites, of Helek, the family of the Helekites, of Asriel, the family of the Asrielites, not the Israelites, the Asrielites. And of Shechem, the family of the Shechemites. Different Shechem than Dinah and Shechem and that sad story in, in Genesis 37. Uh, Shemida, the family of the Shemidites. The Hefer, the family of the Heferites. 
Now Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, had no sons, but only daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mahiah, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. By the way, that's the girl named Noah. We were talking about that the other day. And uh, Milcah. All right. These are the families of Manasseh, and those who numbered them were 52,700. And see, these numbers get flipped around. That should be the Ephraim number. The uh, Manasseh number should be the smaller one, this 32.5. And that was another problem with the Hebrew manuscripts. And the scribes recognized that. The scribes recognized that they tried to make the emendations. Anyway, Manasseh. 31 Elephim, 15 Maoth. A little bit larger than what they had before. Remember, in chapter 1, they were 6 and 6. They, they were the smallest... Uh, they only had 12 Maoth in chapter 1. They're up to 15 Maoth now. Ephraim with 51 Elohim, 17 Maoth, 9 and 8. Benjamin, 34 Elohim, 15 Maoth. So we have the comparisons there. Um, also, before you leave, I'm going to show you, if you want these, if you want these pop-ups in your Logos, you can have them. Okay? You can have them in your Logos. I'll show you how to get those. So, uh, Dan, 62 Elohim, 24 Maoth. That's Dan a little bit. Dan was always the largest. Dan was even larger than than Judah in terms of the Maoth that he fielded because back in chapter 1 he fielded 27 when Judah only fielded 26. Now Judah's down to 25 and Dan has dropped to 24 Maoth, 24 infantry companies we would say. So these are the sons of Dan according to their families, Shuhan, the Shuhamites, the families of Dan according to their families. All right. And there's the number there. 62 Elohim, 24 Maoth. And you see the comparison with the first muster. All right. Then Asher, he's got fewer Maoth, 14, compared to what he had before. He had 15 at the first muster. 42 Elohim, so more chiefs, fewer companies. And then Naphtali, the last one. 44 chiefs, that's way down. Naphtali had 51 the first time around. He dropped seven chiefs. And uh, 14 Maoth, that's way down. That's a full 10 lower than the 24 Maoth that they had. Anyway, so there are other puzzles there. I think this number on Asher needs to be adjusted. So essentially what the Hebrew scribes did, they, they started to take like 30,000 and kind of boost the Ephraim number up. And then they, they took 10,000 from three other tribes to bring them way down. And all of that was a scribal attempt to try to keep the same number. They wanted to end up with this 601, 730. So they got there, but they got there by kind of fudging a few of the other numbers along the way. And the problem is, when you're doing that, when, you know, when you're a scribe and you've got a quill and you're putting notes in the margins of your, of your text, is that sometimes that gets confused and that gets brought into other texts and then it gets copied wrong by other copyists that are copying other scrolls. And so uh, 
Some of these issues, uh, you know, they're, they're worth looking into. And I hope none of this ever causes any believer to doubt the God-breathed and inspired nature of the Word of God. All right? Because every jot, every tittle, as God wrote it, is eternal. As we copied it, we've got to work that out with our own text criticism, with our own exegesis, with our own studies in reconstruction of the autographs. Because we don't have the autographs. We reconstruct the autographs with our own uh, study, with our own work. So if there's anyone that thinks, by the way, that this diminishes the value of the Word of God, it actually highlights it. It does just the opposite. It enhances the reliability of the Scriptures because so much study has gone into uh, restoring what the text originally said. So the reconstructed table of organization, you have your totals, 579 chiefs, that's down slightly. 226.3 Maoth, and again, that's down slightly, i.e. 29 battalions, and you have the company division. It is notice, noticeable, though, that even though the total company number is down, they no longer have those short companies that they had before. Manasseh has been able to, to field now full, complete companies, full and complete Maoth into battle. The ranges are anywhere from 31 to 74. The battle units anywhere from 14 to 25. You have the summary numbers there. The largest is now Judah with 74 chiefs and 25. Zebulun can match 25 Maoth, but only has 58 chiefs. Dan is pretty close with 24 Maoth, but only has 62 chiefs. And then surprisingly, Issachar, 52 chiefs and 23 Maoth. That was a big boost from, uh, from before. The smallest remain Asher, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh. Also Gad. Notice, noteworthy that Gad really dropped down into that bottom tier of, of smaller tribes. Anyway, the changes are obvious and comparisons with chapter 1 are interesting, yet difficult to lock down with precision because of the manuscript variants that plague both the Masoretic text and the, the Septuagint. LXX is the Greek Septuagint of chapter 26. Now, based upon this, real quickly before we run out of time, the, um, when they start getting their land grant, it's going to be proportional among these, the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger, you shall increase their inheritance. To the smaller, you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. So not only are we keeping a military census, not only are we tracking the clans, but we're also recognizing once they conquer the land, the division of the land is going to be proportional. You're not going to take a tiny tribe like Manasseh and give them a large segment of land or a large tribe like Judah and, and pack them into a tiny little territory. The, the, the land is going to be assigned accordingly. The land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. So each clan by lot gets their assignments. And then, of course, the Levites. They're enumerated separately. Theirs is not 20 and up to go to war. Theirs is one-year-old and up because they are assigned priestly duties, not war duties. So of the Levites, you have Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and uh, the breakdown there. Mention of Amram and Jochebed. Mention of Nadab and Abihu. By the way, it's a good thing we have this verse in here. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed. 
Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. It's a good thing we have that verse in there because it's nowhere in Exodus. When you're reading about the birth of Moses and you're reading about his parents and who by faith they float him down the river in a basket, the names aren't given in Exodus. But we have the names here, so we're thankful for that. And then Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Also there is a puzzle here, 23,000. I think Carl caught this and Carl emailed me about this. Um, probably that's a, that's a digit off. Probably that has one too many zeros. We actually should be numbering that as 2,300 rather than 23,000. Um, that was something I failed to mention when we were in chapter 1. And, uh, but if you read the PDFs I mentioned, if you wanted to read the scholarly work of Wenham and uh, Clark, R.E.D. Clark, if you read through those, uh, Wenham really highlights the, the... In fact, I call it a likelihood. I think he called it a certainty. That, uh, that this 23,000 was a tens digit off, that it should be 2,300. All right. So praise God for these scholars. Before I let you go, let me highlight, if you want these, if you want this notebook, then you can have it. Open up your Logos, come up here to Documents, and then... Instead of your documents, because honestly, if you haven't used Logos very much and you haven't created so many documents yet, I've been using Logos for almost 30 years. I have created hundreds of documents, okay? Uh, Then your list here is going to be pretty short, but instead of selecting yours, select groups. And now you can go get some of the group documents that are going to be available to you, depending on how many Logos Faith Life groups that you're a part of. And you'll notice when I um, put my groups here as a filter, here's all my groups, right? I've got the Dean Bible Ministries group. I've got the Dr. Robert Dean Class Notes. I've got the Austin Bible Church group. That's the one we all have if you're a part of the Austin Bible Church Faith Life page. Morris Proctor Seminars, MP Seminars Online, Faith Life Equip, and Logos Search. So I'm, I'm actually... I think I'm subscribed to more groups than that, but those are the only groups that have contributed online notebooks for Logos users. Okay, So select uh, Austin Bible Church as your filter. If you need to, you may not need to. Maybe the only ones there are the Austin Bible Church ones. All right. Once you select the Austin Bible Church documents, they're all going to be there. And that's going to include reading plans, passage lists. That's going to include prayer lists. That's going to include different notebooks. What you're looking for this morning is notebooks. And the one that specifically applies to the numbers muster figures is called numbers muster figures. Okay, And if you want to take the other one also, take the other one also. If it's there, you can have it. That's why it's there. And then all you do is highlight it, and then you come up here when it says add to your docs, click that, and it's added to your docs. So that once you do that, then you can come along and come back here to look at yours. And when you look at yours, it's going to show up right there open it up, and there you have it. And not only does it show up there, you don't even have to open it. Not only does it show up there, just having it, having it as among your documents means that you can then have it displayed in your Bible window. Right? It shows up here as a filter inside your visual filters. And when you're looking at all of your uh, notes, 
Let me get there. Not visual filters, but notes and highlights. When you expand your notes and highlights, you're going to see... I got a lot of these too. There it is. Numbers, muster, figures. Right there. Numbers, muster, figures. And then it'll be in your library. Just as soon as you copy it to your docs. And as long as it's there, you're going to have those purple little check boxes. If you toggle it on and off, you can make them disappear, you can make them reappear. Just simply by toggling, toggling them on and off. It's just a check mark there. Check and uncheck. I think by default it's checked though. So as soon as you add it to your library, as soon as you add the group notebook to your documents, then they'll start showing up in your Bibles as you, as you browse to that chapter. And you'll have them there in chapter 26. And you'll have them there in, in Numbers chapter 1. Whoops. There we go. You have all of these uh, purple check marks. And I went ahead and I put two in there for every verse. If you don't have a New American Standard Bible, then you won't get the second one. That's, that's keyed to that exact number right there. But any Bible, any Bible will have that first one. Any Bible will have the first purple checkbox because it doesn't matter what Bible you're looking at, it's, it's linked to the Bible reference, not the word, if that makes sense. All right. Long day and I just blew your brain there in the last two minutes. But um, get with me after class or shoot me a text. We'll, I'll walk you through it on your own computer. I'll sit down with you at your computer to help you uh, get it added to your system. And, uh, and we'll take it from there. Father, we thank you for this class. We thank you for these students. We thank you for this day. And it is a long day, Father. But we thank you that you got us through it. We look forward now to, uh, to the next three this week. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night coming through, and then Sunday morning, one week from today, we have one final message at 9.30, and the book of Numbers is over. And then we move on to Deuteronomy at 11 o'clock. So uh, this uh, Through the Bible series just is rocketing along, Father, and you, you show yourself faithful each step of the way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.